Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we start the, this new book study and ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this and let your spirit lead. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Jude, one page in most Bibles, sometimes two pages, <laughs> right before the book of Revelation. Uh, 25 verses. <laughs> Very short book, but a lot of information in it. So... As usual with the introduction, we're going to go who wrote it, uh, when it was written, all that stuff. So we're going to be looking at it. First, the who. The, the title Jude uh, actually would be Judas in most of the trans, direct translations. And it says right in the very first, Jude, the, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Uh, so it tells us that Jude wrote the book. Up until probably the 1800s, it was automatically assumed that Jude wrote the book. <laughs> After the 1800s, higher criticism, people tried to say otherwise, I'm going to ignore them. I'm not even going to go into their arguments. I uh, do not believe that it was written in 3, 4, 500 AD like they tried to say from higher criticism. I will go that it was accepted by the early founding fathers and that it was written in the first century as they believed and quoted from. So we're going to ignore any of the higher criticisms. So this leaves us with an idea of one of two different people as being the main idea of who wrote it. First one that a lot of people believe is that it is the apostle Judas. All right? Judas, the son of Altheus, the brother of James, the son of Altheus. They were listed in the uh, New Testament in Luke 6, 13 and 16 in the list of, of uh, apostles. And they are a possibility. The other one is that it is Jude, the brother, the half brother of Jesus. This was this would be coming from Mark six or Matthew thirteen fifty, where it lists Jude, Judas as one of the brothers of Jesus, and one of the brothers of Jesus is also named James. <laughs> so both of those would fit. And there's long arguments about which one is which one it is. This, in the book of Jude, he never claims to be an apostle, which doesn't automatically get rid of Judas, uh, son of Altheus. But I, I personally believe that if he had been one of the apostles, he probably would have stated that. But it is possible that he didn't. Uh, his brother was James the Lesser, who was the bishop of uh, Jerusalem. And so he may have just been not wanting to try to put himself up, you know, and, and saying something. So it is, it is possible. James the Lesser is different than James the son of Altheus? James the Lesser is the, is the, is the uh, son of Altheus. James the Greater, because there was, two Jew, uh, there was two James in Jesus' group as well. He was martyred in Jerusalem, and then Peter was arrested. So there's a James the Greater, James the Lesser. So. Okay, and James the Greater, was he related to Jesus? No. Why do we know that none of the apostles were his brothers is because in John 7, 5, it tells us that none of his brothers believed until after the resurrection. All right, so we know that none of the apostles are Jesus's. And a matter of fact, on, on more than one occasion, you know, uh, two, of the, two of the books tell us that Mary and his half-brothers came to take him away because they thought he was crazy. And just as many people did back in those days, you, you, you took the crazy person and hit them in your house so they didn't embarrass the family. 
So Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. There's no way he was the brother of James the Greater? I'm not going to rule that one out, but yeah. James the Greater does not indicate that he had a brother named Judas. The other ones we know had a brother, so. Yes, Jesus has a brother named James. <laughs> let, me, let me go to Mark chapter 6. No, I believe you. I just give up. That's fine. No, I've got these ones marked because I wanted to go into some of this because it does get confusing when we look at these things because just like in our day when somebody says, you know, my name is Mark or I'm John or I'm Richard, there's so many people with the same name that it is possible. And James, Judas, uh, you know, go through, the, go through the hassles of looking up Mary in the New Testament. There's a minimum of three Marys that are referred to in the New Testament. You know, and, and if they don't put the last... The, the last little Mary Magdalene or, or right, you know, we don't know. It's difficult sometime to, to understand that. But in Mark 6, chapter 3, it says, is the, uh, the people are saying, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Jose, and Judah, or Judas, and Simeon, and are not his sisters here with us? So here we see the list of James and Judah and other brothers. So we, you know, and this is one of the things that we look at is there was at least four brothers and two sisters in Jesus's family that were half, half brothers to him and half sisters. All right. Uh, the same thing is also said in Mark, in Matthew 13, if you want to look, look it up there. But so we know that there's this character, these characters. <laughs> and then we go into Luke chapter six. And here we have the list of the apostles, and it says, and he, in verse 13, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and, and of them he chose twelve, and of them he named, he named apostles. Simon, whose name is Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called, the, called Zealots, Zealot, and Judas, the brother of James and Judas Iscariot, who was also the traitor. So here's our list of it, list of the people. And I would almost say he didn't want to go by Judas because Judas Iscariot kind of ruined that name, you know. <laughs> so they had Judas. Two Judases in his group, two Jameses in his group. <laughs> this is how popular those names were. <laughs> see why there's only one page So we have an apostle with the name Judas, who is surviving, who is the brother of James. We have the half-brother of Jesus, whose name is Judah or Judas, whose name who's, has a brother named James. And there's a James in there, and we don't know that he has a brother named Judas. So we're going to rule him out. We're going to rule out the James the Greater at this point, all right? So, is Judas a name or is it it's just another. It's just another translation translation of the name all right because even when we talk about you know Jude is a translation of the name Judah or Jew uh, Judas just as Jesus's name was not going to be Jesus in amongst his people because he was he was a Hebrew so he would have been called what we would say Joshua and it's kind of an amazing thing that we never translate Jesus' name as Joshua into English because we use the Greek name 
Jesus for him. And, you know, you all didn't know that you were always using the, G the Greek name for Jesus when you spoke Jesus. Um, because his name is literally Joshua, which means the Lord will save. And what's Yahweh? Yahweh is the, name, is the Hebrew name for God. Uh, and then, so he would be Yeshua HaMashiach, or Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and in his day, he would have been called Yeshua Bar Joseph, because everybody assumed that he was Joseph's son, so Bar means son, so it would have been Jesus, son of Joseph, would have been his name known amongst the Hebrews. So this gets us into, and this is why we always talk about translations can get us into all kinds of funny issues and places uh, because of the way things are translated, the way things are done. And, you know, so it's, and believe me, speaking another language, I understand what a pain in the neck translations can be. <laughs> and, you know, just learning these things can be, be an issue. Just like Jude is, is, is Judas or Judah going into the Hebrew, Judas in the, in the, in the Greek and Judah into the Hebrew. So it's a very popular name amongst the Hebrew people to, to, to have this name. James was a very popular <laughs> name. So this gives us one, two very logical candidates for this, this title. Now, I've always been taught that it was Je, uh, Ju, uh, Judas or Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, because of the lack of any kind of quotations in here or setting himself up. Uh, and the same thing with James. I believe it was the half-brother of Jesus was the one that wrote James. So these are where I come from, where if you want to disagree and say it was the apostle, it doesn't matter to me because it's really not that important exactly who it is, but I do want to say that they're very clear it's probably one of those two. There are people in higher criticism that tried to make it, you know, some later, later book and everything, but it's quoted from early church fathers. It makes some quotes from it. And it's never been in question as whether it's a canonical book or an accepted book. And, you know, so this is something that, you know, people will try to tell you, and especially when you get into higher criticism, they'll try to say many of these books weren't written in the right time, and they threw out a lot of other books that were, were written. And they will quote the Council of Nicaea in the 400 AD, and they'll say, well, those people just randomly picked books. No, they had some strong rules, and by that time, everybody knew what the books of the, books of the Bible were. So, so they would go in and they go, they were quoted by the early church fathers, and there was a set of books called the Bible, 27 of the Old Te uh, New Testament letters and everything, and everybody said, these are scripture. And all they did was finalize the, finalize the statement that, yes, these are what we're going to say are scripture. They didn't throw out a lot of books because they hadn't been written yet. The ones that they always are controversial weren't even written yet, so they didn't throw anything out. And so this has always been an accepted book from as early back as possible. It's possible that there are books in the Bible that are missing. That is missing? No. That are scripture? No. Are there good books out there written by other people that aren't in there? Absolutely. We know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. We have two. He refers to other letters. He refers to letters that we don't have. He refer, Paul refers to his letter to the Laodiceans. We, as far as I know, we don't even have a copy of that letter anywhere. 
So yes, there are, there are things that are referred to in Scripture that we know are, are not part of Scripture. We know that there are things that these men wrote that aren't part of, of the Scripture. Are they Scripture? No, otherwise they would be <laughs> in the Scripture. All right. Uh, are they necessarily terrible books? No, some of them might even been been good books. But you know, there is a school of thought that says that every, all these people who wrote these things, knowing that they were writing scripture. I don't think that was true. I think God inspired them and they wrote. But I don't think they. Well, I'm writing scripture. <laughs> I don't think they had that attitude when they were writing these letters. They were just. They were ministering. They were just ministering to the people. I didn't think it, I don't think Paul ever expected his books to be read in 2,000 years later. I, that's my personal opinion. I could be wrong, but I don't think he was thinking that his letter to the Corinthians correcting that church was going to be read by the churches 2,000 years later to say it was, you know, scripture. Now, he may have. Peter seemed to understand that much of Paul's writing was because he, he quotes back and says, these letters written by, these scriptures written by, brother Paul are our scripture he seemed to understand that they had taken a higher level and it is possible I'm not going to argue there are people that will argue that back and forth both ways I just have a personal opinion that they didn't understand that they were writing scripture uh, you know that's my personal <laughs> okay uh, where was I? got lost okay so we have these two candidates out there. Was it the apostle who wrote it that had been taught by Jesus or his brother? We don't know. You know either way, it doesn't matter because the spirit is the one that writes the, <laughs> writes the words anyway. So it doesn't, doesn't matter. There's people who say that it should be the apostle. He walked with Jesus for the four years and was trained up and everything. But we don't have much about him. Jude, Judas, son of Alphaeus, is not mentioned very often. In the, he's mentioned in the list in about two other places where he says one or two things uh, in the scriptures. Other than that, we don't know anything about him. Uh, when I did my research, it's very hard to find anything about his martyrdom outside of uh, hearsay. So we, don't, we know that he was martyred. We don't fully understand how or where uh, because it's not very clear in the his, history of it. So... I'm not going to just make sure we understand that Judas, his brother, half brother, was not the apostle because it is Judas Iscariot, which is, is the betrayer. And we have Judas, son of Alphaeus. And if you look in, Ma in, the, in the book of Matthew, the who, who begat Joseph, Alphaeus is not his father. <laughs> so it's definitely not him. <laughs> so, all right. Any other questions on the who? <laughs> all right. So the question then becomes, when was this book written? Nobody out there has any clue when it was written. I saw estimates from as early as 550 AD to 150 AD. All right. I will tell you that the school of, that I went to basically said that the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD because it's quoted by other people, and these were Jewish guys that would have mentioned the fall of, Rome, the fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> and so I do believe, and he quotes so much of the scripture, scripture reference, I believe it would have been a big deal to him to say, Jerusalem has fallen. All right? um, now when we get to Peter, Peter doesn't quote quite as much scriptures and stuff, so he might have done it, but we know that Peter 
you know, didn't live too much past the fall of fall of uh, Jerusalem either. So we know that anything he wrote couldn't be that that old. So this is I'm going to tell you that it's probably be 50 to 50 A.D. to 70 A.D. Uh, if he was the brother of James the, the Lesser, probably could have lived to about 90 or so. But even with the book of Revelation, it is believed that it is written before 70 A.D. because John would have definitely said Rome, you know, Rome has destroyed <laughs> Jerusalem already and, and the Revelation was the last book written. So, you know, that we know the date of. So I believe he's before that period of time. Can I prove it? No. <laughs> you know, if somebody wants to prove something, well, well, I can prove that it was written at this point. That's fine. I'm not going to argue it. But I'm going to say I believe everything in the New Testament is written before 70 A.D. because these are Jewish people writing the book. All right? And we've always got to remember this. When we're reading the New Testament, that we need to put ourselves in a Jewish mindset when we read them because these were Jews writing the book. And oftentimes, unfortunately, the church puts themselves in a Gentile mindset and then interpret it to mean something that it doesn't mean so often. And so we need to be careful how we look at this because this was the biggest problem that they were going through in the church. As Gentiles were becoming part of the church, they had to decide what was going on and how to handle Gentiles becoming part of Christian Christianity. Because when Christianity first started, it was protected by the Romans because it was con considered a sect of Judaism. Right? And Rome had a, an agreement with the Jews that when the Jews surrendered to them, that the Jews could practice their religion. So when Christianity first started, it was called the Way. If you didn't know that, it's called the Way. And that was the name of it, and it was considered a Jewish sect. So everywhere it went, it was considered Jews, all these Christians. And then we had the first Gentile getting coming into it that was recorded when Peter goes to Cornelius, this house, because God showed him a dream saying, you're going to go to Cornelius' house, and I have called this Gentile. And if you remember the story of this, he, goes to, he finally goes to Cornelius' house, and he goes, I'm not even allowed to be in your house, but God told me to come here and, and minister to you. And then he was shocked when when Cornelius actually got saved and got baptized in the Holy Spirit and started, started speaking in tongues and all the things that go, went along with this, and that amazed him. And if you remember, the next part of the story is that he gets called on the carpet by the other, other apostles saying, what was it that you did? He was a Gentile and a Roman, Roman, Roman military leader of 100 men. And that started, and then after that, multitudes of people were starting to come in, and then you've got... At Antioch, they're preaching to the, to the Gentiles. And then Paul comes along, and he preaches to all kinds of Gentiles. And the church is having to try to figure out, hold it, we, we're Jews. This is a Jewish sect. And we've got all these Gentiles coming in who are not, being, who are not circumcised, who are not, not becoming Jews. What do we do with them? Is that God's What's God's intention all the time? I mean, uh, to bring people into him. Because even when you look at the Pentateuch, when God kept saying, these are the laws for you and for all the other people, and yet the Jews 
blocked out the Gentiles unless they would proselytize to become a Jew. Uh, and so there was always this, this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And unfortunately, most of it was from the Jewish side. You know, the Jews have had a lot of problems over the years with the Gentiles, and mostly it was because of their attitude toward the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles would react and, and you know, you think you're better than us, we'll, we'll take care of you. And, and then, of course, Satan's anger at them didn't help matters at all. So this is what this book is going to be. We'll see this in, in chapter, in verse 3, uh, chapter 3. Verse 3 uh, on his reasoning for writing to them was for this whole process. And all of this comes down to a beautiful message that he's, that he's trying to get. God loves all people. And this is what's going on. Uh, there seems to be humility in James saying, I'm not going to claim either the relationship with Jesus as, as his half-brother or relationship to apostle on either, either side that you want to go. There's a, a little bit of humility in there. And you could almost really expect it if he's the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> you know, you know I didn't, we didn't really believe until after the resurrection, and now we believe. And you know, there might have been some people saying, yeah, right, you know, <laughs> who cares what you think? To see apostle, I'm not sure why he would have not said I'm the apostle. I really, I, that's my biggest problem with accepting him, accepting that it's the apostle. Uh, you know, why would he not have said who he was, uh, and and built up that relationship that was that was in there. And so we see here this whole thing. The theme of the book is a very simple one. It is a warning against false teachers and against heresy. And so this book fits very well into our day and age. <laughs> and the sad thing about it, it is used for so much heretical teaching and, and, and crazy teaching, and yet it's a book against heresy. And so we're going to tear this apart a little bit, look at some of these, some of these things that are going, going on, and work on those. Starts out real, with the first one, his salutate. The first, the first verse is his salutation. Then he tells us why he's writing it. Then he's going to tell us of warnings about uh, past judgments on on the children of Israel. Then he's going to give characteristics of false teachers. Then he's going to uh, refer to the end days, the duties of believers. And then he's going to give a benediction. So this is the. The, story, the lines on it, uh, it is a book that has always been considered a, a book of scripture. And it's, it is kind of amazing. Some of, these, some of these books are so small, and yet they are packed with information. You read 2 John, 3 John, Obadiah, you know, these, these books that are just one or two chapters long in many cases, and they're packed. That God just packed them with information in it. So we're going to look at verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So here is his call. This is, we've already talked about that first part, Jude. <laughs> Jude. And he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. And the word here for servant is the bond servant, one who's perpetually chosen as a servant. And I love this idea. This was Paul's favorite title for himself. I'm the bond slave of Christ. 
All right? Not compelled, not forced. I have chosen to be his servant. Now, that didn't lessen the amount of work you had to do and all of that. It just meant, I have chosen this position. It comes from the Hebrew mindset that if you sold yourself into slavery to, for a debt, it was going to be for a period of seven years. At the end of the seven years, you looked at the round and you're going, you know, I'm a real idiot. I'm going to get into trouble again with financially, and this is a nice master. You know, good, you could say, I want to be this person's servant forever rather than being released at the end of the seven years. And they would put an earring, you know, earring in your ear showing that you were a chosen servant and you were chosen to be that person's servant or slave. Uh, and this is the relationship that each of the apostles bring up. I am the bond slave of Christ. And I like that term. That should be each one of us. I have chosen to serve God as a slave. Now, how does that mean when we're actually going through things? <laughs> you know, uh, when God tells me to do something that I don't want to do, the slave does not get to go, no, I'm not going to do it. All right? Uh, it means that when he tells us something to do, we go out and do it. Whether we want to, whether we think it's right, doesn't matter because we were told to do it by the master. And this is something that, especially in America, we have a big problem with. You know, we elect our leaders. We don't like our leaders. We get rid of them in two, two to six years, depending on what, what position they're in. All right? And we, we have no problem speaking against our leaders. In most of the world, that has never been the case. You know, you had a king. The king was there until he died or was assassinated or, or rebelled against <laughs> But he was there, theoretically, until he died. It didn't matter whether you liked him or didn't like him. You were not getting rid of him. You spoke against him, you might lose your head. Because that's how much power they had. We don't understand that mentality in America. We don't understand the idea of somebody is master and what they say goes. And yet, that's the language of the Bible refers to when we're looking at Jesus. He is our master. And if we're truly in a bond slave relationship with him, the only thing that ends that is when I die and go to heaven and then, I'd be, then I get to have a closer relationship to him because we are the bride of Christ and we'll have a closer relationship with him than we have in this lifetime. But we need to really start to understand we're told to obey him. And this is why it's very interesting sometimes when we read the scriptures, are we reading the scriptures and saying, this is a command or are these suggestions? And unfortunately, if we were to really understand Greek, most of what we think are suggestions in the New Testament are actually commands, <laughs> imperative commands. And we don't read them that way because they don't, they don't have that impact in the English King James Version and you get into the Greek and read, oh, imperative. You know, and I look at that and I'm going, oh, an imperative. That means it is a command. And there are lots of things in there that don't read like commands in the, in the English version of the Bible that are actually commands of God. So we want to be able to understand that he's given us some rules. 
And then he says, it's to them that are sanctified by God. Sanctification that we go through is from God and by God. And this is the beauty of salvation. We've talked about this many times. Salvation has three parts involved to it. And we have to keep that in mind all the time. Part one, I am declared perfect. All right? When I get saved, God justified me. And it says, you are perfect. Royal declaration from the throne of God. You are perfect. Everybody who has accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior, God declares you as perfect. The second part is we are being sanctified. He is making us who he said we were from the beginning. And every verse in about sanctification is God sanctifying us, God perfecting us. It is not me by my works sanctifying myself. It is God doing things in my life to sanctify me and work out the, the, the sinful nature, crucify it, and make me who he said we were in the beginning. At the very end, we will be glorified. The moment we die or are raptured, we will be glorified and God will make us who he said we were in the beginning. And the flesh will be totally gone and we will have no more sin nature, no more desire to sin, no more problems with sin, because we will be what he said we were in the beginning. So this is something that we have out there because, I, why do I bring this up? Is because there are a lot of churches that have problems with the whole idea of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Because they will take and unwrap it all up in one. And there are churches out there that say, the moment you're saved, you are perfect. Now, I have never met a Christian who's perfect. <laughs> so what does that mean for them? They struggle with the idea of being saved. They struggle with the idea of are you saved or not because you're not perfect. Because they don't understand the three parts of salvation to keep them separated. And it is hard for us because even when we're reading it, it's hard sometimes. Is God talking about who he says we are? Is he talking about who we are and being sanctified? Or is he talking about who we will be. And the really crazy thing is because he's outside of time, he deals with us as, as we will be even in today's world <laughs> where we're not perfect and he's treating us as, with, by how we will be because he's outside of time and says, I know what you will be. You know, and it gets very hard for us when we're st struggling with the scriptures. Because one thing I have known and even after walking with God for 50 years, I am nowhere no close to being perfect. And I have never met a Christian who's perfect. Now, I've met people over the years that are a little closer to perfection than others. But you get to know them and you find out very quickly that they're not perfect either. Because we can never be perfect in this lifetime. Or because of the sin nature. Now, if we could totally s release ourselves to God, we would probably get to be perfect. And then we'd be Enoch and we'd be translated right to God's presence right away. Enoch in this world and, and Elijah are probably the two people who got as close to God and close to perfection as possible. And what did God do? He took them home. And as the old joke goes, you know, God says, you and I are so close, I'm just going to take you home with me. You know, and it's probably not so far off. You, know, you and I are so close, you're, you're walking the way I want you to walk. I'm just going to bring you right, right to heaven and, and, and bring, you, bring you here. I have not met any Christian, including myself, that's anywhere close to that. <laughs> 
right? Um, so he says that, that are sanctified by God. And I want you to note that by. It is God that does the sanctification. All right? Uh, we can strive, we can work, we can tr struggle to try to be perfect. But you'll notice the one thing I say is we. If my flesh is involved, it's not going to be perfection. I can discipline my flesh. I can use a whip in a chair and, and keep, it on the, keep it on the chair of there in the show and, and make it you know, jump between the different uh, pedestals. But the moment I turn my back on my, my flesh, it's going to come roaring back with a vengeance. This is why it must be crucified. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live, I live according to the flesh of, the, the faith of Jesus. His goal is not to discipline our flesh. His goal is to crucify our flesh. If we're doing it on our own, our goal is not to crucify the flesh, our goal is to try to discipline the flesh. Let me put it under enough control that I don't have to worry about it. The, a disciplined flesh does not stay disciplined. It will turn on you in a heartbeat. Uh, Siegfried and Roy are the greatest example, where I can't remember which one of them that was in the cage with their big cats, but they forgot for a moment that that cat was a wild cat and got mauled. You know, and so that's what the flesh will do to us. As soon as we forget about it for just a moment, the flesh will come back with a vengeance. That is why it must be crucified. And so he says, God sanctifies, and then I love this, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So this is going to be something very interesting because the word for preserved literally means to be kept by Christ. You know, and this is the wonderful thing. God sanctifies us. Jesus preserves us. He keeps us in, in our sanctified state. You know, this is the wonderful thing about being a Christian. Everything about my walk with God is also about God. He is the one that, that died for my sins. He is the one that rose from the dead to, to, for the glory to in, in resurrection power. He's the one that declares me perfect. He's the one that sanctifies me. He's the one that keeps me. And he is the one that's going to glorify me. Where does that leave me? Hopefully on a cross, hanging there on the cross, being, being crucified so that I can live in him. We spend so much time as Christians trying to live a Christian life trying to put on a show for other people to, to impress them about how good I am. And then we end up under the pressure and the, the flesh says, oh, I'm not, they don't have, they left the door to the cage open, I am coming out. And that's when somebody goes exploding on you and, and makes you realize that they're still a sinner. That's when they do something that just, wow, I didn't ever think they'd ever do something like that. And that we need to be able to understand we are sanctified by God and kept by Jesus. Preserved. Kept 
by him. And only he has the strength to keep us. And I love the fact that he is the one that is going to keep us in our position. And the closer we are to him, the better off we are. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. What does a branch do to survive? Well, it had better stay connected to the, the, the root. If you want to kill a vine, just disconnect it from the root, and it'll wither away in no time at all. And it's not sitting there saying, I got to stay connected, I got to stay connected, I got to stay connected. It just stays connected. And this is hard sometimes for us. I sometimes will sit back and say, God, what am I doing wrong as a pastor? Our church isn't all that big and all these different things. And, you know, and I have to remind myself it's his church. And I'm not the one that's building this church. It's him that builds this church. Now, am I the perfect pastor? Absolutely not. I know that I'm not. Could I do things better? Probably. But it's his grace that allows me to be pastor of this church. It's his grace that grows this church. It's his grace that keeps people. And we need to understand that it's by his grace that all this stuff happens. It is not anything we do. You know, and we understand, we've talked about this several times, grace is not getting, or getting, getting everything we don't deserve. You know, that's good. Because God is saying, I just want to bless you. And we realize, and you know, many of us have a hard time accepting grace because we're going, God, I don't deserve it. Obviously, we don't deserve it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. You know, if it's gray, if, it, if we deserved it, we wouldn't be getting grace. We'd be get, we'd getting wages. And I learned very quickly, I don't want what I deserve. I, I love it when I talk to people and they go, well, all I want is what I deserve. And I'm going, no, you don't. <laughs> You don't want what you deserve. It's really easy to convince Christians that they don't want what they deserve. A little harder to convince the world that they don't, they don't want what they deserve. But obviously, we want grace. We want God's grace. And we really do need to understand grace more than we ever, ever do. We've talked about this in an acronym, and I like the acronym even though it's simplistic. God's riches at Christ's expense. It is simplistic. It's only the bare, the bare bones of it, but that's still powerful. If that's the only thing you know about grace is that I get God, the wealth of God at Jesus' payment, that's enough. But if you can go deeper into that to understand the wonderful life of grace, the power of grace, where I do not have to worry about my state with God because I am under grace. I am at liberty before God because of grace. I am not bound up by rules and laws because of his grace. Now, does grace mean I can go out and do whatever I want to? Well, it's a yes and no on that. Paul understood that you know, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But his very next statement is, should I go out and sin you know, so that grace will abound? He said, God forbid. My desire is not to go out and sin just because I'm covered by grace, because I love him so much that I want to please him. But it changes my motivation. There are many religious people out there that are serving God, hoping to win brownie points with God. 
if I do enough good things, God will like me better because I'm closer to him. No, not going to happen. The only reason God accepts us is because what Jesus did on the cross. He took all of our sin upon the cross and allows us to have grace and mercy. And the definition of mercy is not getting what we deserve. Now, I love God's mercy, but I really love his grace. Getting all the, all the blessings of heaven because Jesus paid that debt. And making it so that I don't have to struggle to please him. Because I can't please him. We need to really fully understand that when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see my righteousness, thankfully. Because Isaiah 64 tells us that my righteousness is filthy rags. He doesn't, and that's my good. You know, have you ever talked to somebody and they go, well, when I hope to, when I give, appear before God, I hope that I'm good enough to please him. And I'm, and I'm going, you're not. And they get mad. And I'm going, nobody's goodness is enough to please God. He calls our, and this is the thing, at the white throne judgment, they're going to be judged for having rejected Jesus Christ. They're going to be standing at the white throne judgment clothed in their righteousness not their sins they're going to be standing before the God of the universe the great judge in filthy rags and if you know anything about court they do not go in before the, the judge in filthy rags and you know they dress them up as best they can you know uh, they take them out of the prison in their in their or in, in Arizona in orange <laughs> And the first thing they're going to do is put some kind of suit of clothes on them so that they don't look like prisoners. But the people, when they stand at the white throne judgment, are going to get to stand in what they think is good. And they're going to start saying, you know, God, look at all the good things I've done. And then they get to look down and say, uh, I'm in trouble. They will know that they are in trouble at that point. And at that point, it's too late they will not be able to stand before God. And they're standing in their righteousness, what they hoped was going to be good enough for God. And this is why the idea of doing more good than bad doesn't work because God says our good is not good enough. Our good is always tainted. Usually even in our own good as Christians when we're serving God, it's a tainted, I'm doing it to get a reward. I'm getting it because somebody's going to be nice to me or they're going to think better of me. And it's tainted by the flesh. Now, am I saying it's bad? No, it's, it's, it's service. But it's not what's going to please God. It's not perfect. This is why Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He had no ulterior motives in anything that he did all he wanted to do was serve the Father. And his love was such that is an amazing love. You know, I am always amazed that Jesus suffered all the suffering that he did before he even went to the cross. The beatings he took, the, 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 the uh, whip that he took, the God of the universe who with one thought could have eliminated 
the entire world, but you know, he, you know, the guy beating him with one thought, he could have gotten rid of that person. And then he got onto the cross and he hung there. And again, with just one thought, could have come off that cross. With one thought, could have gotten rid of the Roman, guard, you know, Roman centurions putting him on the on the cross. But his love held him to that cross. His love held him as he was being beat. His love held him when he became sin on the cross and the Father turned his back on him. What love did he have for us? I can tell you, I wouldn't have had that kind of love. You know, I would not have had that kind of love knowing that I had the power to get out of it. It's one thing to have that kind of love, you know, and just being, you know, resolved to go through it. But it's a whole other thing when he could have just, with one thought, said, this is done. I'm done with this. I'm not going to go through with this. And he's God. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to, to choose not to have done it. But his love for all the world left him there. I've always stopped and thought about the, 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 the value of the cross and, and the power that he had that he could have just said, you know, at any point he could have said, Father, they're not worth it. I'm coming home. And we'll just let, we'll just let Satan have them all. And we'll just annihilate everything and send them all to hell. It's what they deserve. That's what we're going to give them. But his love held him there to redeem us. You know, and you know, I am always literally amazed when I think about this. Completely amazed when I think about his love and the cost of our salvation. Because so many Christians don't fully understand the cost of their salvation. The great cost of salvation and treat it so lightly. And you know, so I, I always, and I hope I don't make that too hard on us, but it really is a big deal to me. I would say getting saved, yes, my motive is that I'm not going to go to hell, I'm going to heaven. Yes, I was very selfishly motivated to go to accept Jesus. All right. Uh, works, yes, our works are selfishly motivated, and it shouldn't be. But we are human beings, and most of the time our works are selfishly motivated. But I've had people say you're trying to scare people out of, uh, into heaven. Absolutely. I have no problem with scaring people up for, out of hell and into heaven. Hell's an awful place. I don't want anybody going there. And if I have to paint a heavy picture of what hell is, and that's the consequence of rejecting Jesus, then I have no problem, especially you know, with adults anyway. I wouldn't do that to kids, but <laughs> with adults, I have no problem with scaring the hell out of them. Because that's what I want. All right. Now, I will try to be gentle before, but if it takes scaring somebody into the kingdom, I am not beyond doing that. Because they have to understand the consequences for their sin. If they do not want to accept Jesus' sacrifice, the consequence is an eternity of punishment. Eternity. That's the consequence. I have no problem with, with dealing with that, with that idea of scaring somebody. Now, I won't go to little kids and do that. You know, teenagers and above, I will have no problem trying to scare them into, into, into heaven and out of, out of hell. I will try being gentle first. But people have to understand the consequences is serious. 
You're making a decision that is going to affect eternity. An eternity. And this, that is something that really boggles my mind that we have 80 to 100 years, 60 to 100 years to make a decision that is going to affect us for all of eternity. You know, and because I made a decision to follow God, that means you know, you know 20 gazillion years from now, <laughs> the decision I made at 10 years old to be in heaven kept me there that long. And the people who reject God, one little decision on earth, or multiple decisions on earth, because most people have more than one opportunity to accept Christ, will determine their future for eternity. That is mind-boggling to me. That when you're out there so many, so many gazillion years, you know, this little time on earth will be nothing. You know, uh, we won't even comprehend it. And yet that one little speck of past will have determined your eternal future. That is hard to understand. It is so easy, people don't understand. That. It's so easy that nobody will do it, or many won't do it. Yeah, and I've had I've had so many people, and I loved it because they'll go, "Well, you're telling me it's that easy. All I have to do is admit that I'm a sinner, accept Jesus Christ, and it's too simple." And I have a very simple answer when they tell me. I go, "Yeah, it's so simple that you probably won't do it." Because it is really hard to surrender yourself to God. It really is. It's simple, yet it's hard because I have to get rid of my desire to do what I want to do. And that was the exact sin of Satan on, in, when he rebelled against God. I will be like the Most High. It is the sin that he tempted Eve with. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the problem that most of us have in our life is we want to be God of our life. Even for us as Christians so often, then we claim that we're following God so too often we want to be God of our life instead of the servant of God. And we've got to be very careful about all of this. It is simple to become a Christian. I surrender to God. But boy, is it hard to surrender to God. And I can mean every word of it when I first surrender to him and he, says, he justifies me. And that sanctification problem is to teach me to surrender completely in every area of my life. And every time I surrender one area of the life, he'll show me another area that I need to surrender. Because we are told the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And the more I change my life before God, the more he reveals that I have sin in my life that still needs to be removed. And you know, you would think you know after you know sometimes I would think you know I've been walking God I've been walking with you for 50 years can I please get to the bottom of this sanctification thing? And he keeps showing me other things that I have to get rid of. You know, Paul toward the end of his life said I am the chiefest of sinners and a lot most commentators will say he's referring back to before he was saved, and killing Christians. I don't believe that's true. I believe that he really was seen. Even as a Pharisee, he thought he was pretty good, and then God is showing him, you know, I'm going to keep showing you, Paul, how you're not as good as you think you are. I'm going to show you how deceitfully wicked your heart 
really is down in the core. And you know, it's really hard. It's pretty easy to get rid of, you know, when you first get saved, it's pretty easy to get rid of the, you know, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to do drugs. I'm not going to run around and, you know, lie, steal, cheat. I'm not going to, you know, uh, sleep around. Whatever, whatever your sin was, it's pretty easy to get rid of those big sins. But after a while, God says, okay, we're done with the quote-unquote big sins. Now we're going to deal with what Jesus said. If you hate your brother without cause, you've committed murder. If you think a lustful thought, you have committed adultery in your heart. And he starts saying, we're going to work on all these things. Nobody's going to know what we're working on because nobody knows except for me what you're thinking. You know, and we look good to the world because we're not out there doing what the world does. But God is saying, yeah, let's, let's touch this part of your life that's still a little raw and not surrendered. Uh, let's touch this part. Oh, you're going to church every Sunday. You know, you're going to church every time the doors are open, but why are you doing it? Are you doing it to really worship me and be with the body of Christ, or are you doing it to look like a good Christian? There are a lot of people that just want to look like a good Christian. And, you know, I've, I've seen them. I've talked to them. You know, why aren't you going to church anymore? Well, it was just too much trouble. I'm lazy. Okay, I understand. But why did you go in the first place? Are you going to, so that you can worship God with the body of Christ or to show up and, be, and look good? And I hope I'm not talking to anybody here in this, but, you know, but I do understand. It, it really does come down to that oftentimes. For me, the way I have grown up, I am not going to miss church. And it's not just because I'm the pastor. This has been me all my life. I want to be with the body of Christ. I want to be taught. I want to be fellowshipping with, with, the, with the body of Christ. It's not a question when I wake up, am I going to church? You know, I've told everybody, you know, I almost have to be on my deathbed before I don't go to church. It was very hard when I had that COVID for the two weeks to not come to church. Because everything in me said, go to church, even though the health department said, don't leave my house. And especially when I didn't have a bad case, I felt really good after three days. But I was supposed to be contagious, and I probably was, so I, would, I obeyed. But other than that, the only time I have missed church is when I have been in the hospital, for whatever reason. Not because I'm trying to make brownie points and say, you know, everybody look at me, but because I want to be with God's people. Now, there's other areas in my life I got lots of problems with. <laughs> that is not one of them. But I do know lots of people suffer with that. You know, what will keep you from coming to church? Is it quite a question? You know, some people it's pretty easy to keep them from coming to church. Well, I got a sniffle, gotta stay home. You know, uh, my favorite shows on TV, you know, coming on, the, the football games coming on, whatever it might be, you know, I, I can't come to church. If you have an area that, you will keep you, that will keep you from coming to church, Satan knows it, and he'll have a field day with it. Moms, when, they're, when they have little kids, you know, it's easy to keep moms home from church. You just get their kids sick. You get their kids doing dumb things right before church. And I can tell you, I've come to church many times not in the right mood when my kids were little. Because they would start a fight, they'd argue right before church. 
you know, and growing up and, and, and early on in my marriage, that was one of the biggest things. How many fights came out between my wife and I or the kids Sunday morning? Usually while in the car. <laughs> so you get to church and you are not ready to worship. Satan has all these tricks up his sleeve to know how to try to stop us. How to try to make it so that we aren't ready for where, where we're at. He knows how to keep us from reading our Bibles in the morning and praying by having a power outage that keeps the alarm clock from going off. Giving us painful getting up, especially as we're getting older and we wake up and no, none of the joints want to work. <laughs> and it's like, I just want to lay here for a half hour <laughs> instead of getting up. Uh, so we have all of this going on, but we are sanctified by the Father and preserved by Jesus and then called. And this word for call is very interesting. It is to be, it is parakaleo, it is mean called to his side. It is a very powerful word. We are called to the side of God when we're called. And that's beautiful. He considers us so precious and beloved that he wants us by his side. And I love that idea, to be wanted. And think back, you know, when you were first in love with your, and you, were, and you were married and you just wanted to be with that person. You know, now sometimes after a while you might not want to be with them all the time. But you can, that's why I say, think back to when you first got married and all you could do is think about being with that person. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend that you had that relationship with. This is our relationship with God. He wants us by his side. Now, I know me, and I don't know why he wants me by his side, but he wants us by his side because that's his love for us. And he sees us so different than we see ourselves. This is why I love the songs we sing. You say, uh, remind me, the different songs that say, remember who you are. We have the entire series that we have done, the 51 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. If we can just start remembering what we are, who we are in Christ, and how special we are to God. Because we do not believe how special we are. And I've actually counseled people that, you know, that are really truly loved by their spouse but don't feel like they are. They just will not accept love. And I've seen people and even in churches that just will not accept even the love of the church because they're just, I don't believe it. I cannot accept it. And if they can't accept it from the church, the real problem is they probably don't accept it from God either. That he truly loves them. And it is hard sometimes to really understand that God loves me and wants me by his side and wants you by his side, desires to have you with him. What would happen if we fully started to understand who we are in Christ because of sanctification, the fact that Jesus keeps us there and that we are wanted and desired by God? If we could really start grabbing hold of that idea, we would have a whole different relationship with God. 
we would not be trying to do a works-based orientation with God. We would be saying, wow, God, what can I do? You know, how, can, how can I you know, serve you because you love me so much and you have freed me up from the bondage? When we get saved, we are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the bondage of law. And we are free to be able to serve God with purity of heart. Not trying to earn brownie points, not trying to get our place, but just have liberty to serve him. And then he makes us more like he is over time because he's living inside of us. And as I've said, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in. He sticks our flesh inside the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit literally starts to change the flesh. And the idea is that we've talked about in the past, our flesh is pickled in the Holy Spirit. You know, just like when you pickle something, you stick the vegetables in vinegar, and that vegetable doesn't have to do anything but stay in the vinegar to become pickled. Our flesh stays in the Holy Spirit and is changed over time. And that is the good news for us. It's all God doing the work and no part of me. No part of me. No part of you. <laughs> when, the more we understand that, the better off we're going to be. God, just leave my flesh stuck in the Holy Spirit and it's going to change and I'm going to, and I'm going to live in the sanctification that you've given me because you say I'm perfect. And I'm just going to accept that I'm perfect. We're going to end there. One verse. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening. Lord, thank you for your sanctification, for your grace. Help us to really truly understand who we are in you and to stand in your grace and your mercy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.